I'm here with an old friend, uh, Steve Case. Uh, Steve Case is. Uh, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you in many ways. First, we're going to talk about what you've been doing, which is your book's just out in paperback, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Um, you, of course, were mostly known early in your career for the uh, leading, uh, the first social, basic social media company. I mean, you kind of were ahead of everything with AOL at its peak. Uh, half the people online were on AOL. What I never even knew that you were a marketing guy. I, I, I figured you'd like that. You'd like that. You were, like that. Out, you, you were se- you're selling fucking pizzas, yeah. man. I mean, you know, incre- but now what you're doing is incredible. But let's just talk for a few minutes. How did you go from like being first you were Procter & Gamble for a couple of years as a brand manager and then you're selling new pizza at Pizza Hut to running the the, the biggest online company in the world? Well, first of all, it's great to see you. Great to be with you on, on, this, on this podcast. It was a little bit uh, circuitous when I was in college in the late 70s. I became fascinated with the idea of the internet. It wasn't, you know, called that then. It was called interactive TV and and uh, teletext, videotext, or experiments in this country, other countries around the world uh, of this new era that would be more kind of two way interactivity. Uh, I just thought that made a lot of sense. But when I graduated in 1980, there really weren't any kind of internet companies to go to because it still hadn't really launched this idea was at the time the internet was really just a government you know, funded project for universities and and government agencies uh and so that's why i went to procter and gamble I, I was there for a couple of years in cincinnati figured to learn some things about marketing which i did uh and then i moved on to uh, was pizza which at the time was a division of pepsico thought that would be a different kind of uh lessons to learn which also was the case there about a year and then finally moved to the Washington, D.C. area just 40 years ago, almost exactly, to join a little startup uh, outside of D.C. that was doing something that I thought was interesting in the interactive space. This is, which this is quantum? This is quantum. This is you know, it's something called GameLine, almost like a, a Netflix for video games for Atari game machines four decades ago. Uh, but that's the company struggled and ultimately failed. But two of the people I met there, Jim Kimsey and Mark Seraph and I then co-founded uh, what Quantum, which then became uh, AOL in 1985. So it was a little bit circuitous. Even when we started, people were pretty skeptical. At the time, only 3% of people were online. Those 3% were on- online an average of one hour a week. So it was pretty early days, but it was it was a great adventure. But you did so many revolutionary things. You ended up uh, merging with Time Warner in $164 billion. Sounds quaint now, $164 billion <laughs> merger, yeah. Uh, I, you know, eventually unwinded, just like everything that Time Warner touches, just <laughs> eventually unwinds. What would have happened had AOL not done that? Let's just chart something out at that point. And obviously, it's one of the most talked about mergers in history. Uh, I'm curious now, as you're, as you're an elder statesman, you look back and you're on a whole different life. Because I often say, I, on a much smaller scale, I sold my ad agency. I always wonder, well, if I had not sold it to Interpublic, what would it be like or whatnot? So you ever kind of wax philosophical about what would have happened to AOL had you gone a different path? Yeah, it's hard to say. I do. I mean, sort of, uh, as you said in the intro, half of all the internet traffic was going through AOL was the dominant internet company. Google and things like that were just, uh, you know, fringy. Netflix was just emerging. Facebook hadn't yet existed. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that, that uh, kind of would have, could have, should have. But as I think back on it, part of our journey, we took the AOL public in 1992 as the first internet company to go public. And we raised a whopping $10 million in our IPO. And the value of the company that day was $70 million. And then seven years later, it had gone from $70 million to $160 billion. 
it was actually the best performing stock of the decade. So at that point in time, we really did think diversifying the businesses made sense, having a clear path to broadband made sense. And that's why we merged with Time Warner. I still think strategically it was the right thing to do. Financially, it was the right thing to do. But I learned, obviously, you've learned this many times that you know, strategy is one thing, execution is another. And I, it was a great Thomas Edison quote I love, which is vision without execution is hallucination. Yes. <laughs> and the, vision, the vision for the company, AOL and Time Warner coming together was pretty you know, compelling. It was, right, it was right, by the way, it was a precursor to every tech company buying content. I mean, yep. it, it was not not complicated in hindsight. It made sense. It made complete sense. And Good you idea, ahead, poorly executed. So way, ahead, of, way ahead of the time, way ahead right. of the curve, as always. So I want to talk about the rise of the rest because it's you are democratizing entrepreneurship in a way that nobody else is. You've been doing this for the last almost 10 years. Bus tours, talk, for somebody that's not familiar with what you're doing, talk to me about just basically the essence of it, how it got started. You funded several hundred companies at this point through it. And it's it's really, really inspiring. Well, the essence of it is that, you know, this country, com- you know, counts on innovation to move forward. We, we started as a country 250 years ago as just a startup. Now we're the leader of the free world because we innovated as a country, led the way with the agricultural revolution, led the way the industrial revolution, more recently led the way with the technology revolution. And we need to continue to lead the way. We need to continue to innovate. We need to launch new companies with new ideas. That's point one. Point two is most of the most successful of those new companies end up raising venture capital, which is sort of jet fuel that accelerates their their growth. Uh, yet only uh, in the last decade, about 75% of venture capital three, three cities, has yeah. gone to just you know, three states and within the states, pretty much three cities. So overwhelmingly, it's, it's California, New York, and Massachusetts. And it's really hard to start a company in other parts of the country. So basically, you know, 47 states fight over the remaining 25% of venture capital. So the idea is there are great entrepreneurs everywhere building great companies everywhere, but we need to find them and back them and support them, including with venture capital, other things, mentoring and partnerships, and a lot of things we also try to you know, do. And so that's really the essence of it. How do we level the playing field so anybody with an idea has a shot at building a company, a shot at the American dream? And the process, we can create more jobs and opportunity in different parts of the country. Many parts of those countries, as you, as you know, feel left out and left behind. The, t- the digital world hasn't been particularly positive for them. So that's why you're not only only even playing the field geographically, you're doing it demographically also as far as black, Hispanic women. I mean, so underserved as far as trying to be more a more inclusive view of of innovation. So it's more places and and more people just getting more uh, more shots on goal with different ideas from different people coming from different places. And that's important in part, not just from a fairness standpoint, but also from an economic opportunity standpoint. And from identifying great ideas standpoint, as you know, all the people you work with and even your own you know, career, entrepreneurs basically see a problem and decide to go do something about it. Yeah. Well, guess what? The problems that exist in, in, in New York City are different than the problems that exist in Des Moines, Iowa or Denver, Colorado or Detroit, Michigan. And so finding entrepreneurs in those cities that come out of communities where they have an understanding of what some of the challenges are, but also conversely, what some of the opportunities are uh, is is very important. So that really got us on this uh, trajectory. And in terms of the question about how we got started, I was asked now about 12 or 13 years ago, to co-chair the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship that led to the White House, then President Obama launching an initiative called Startup America, which he asked me to chair. 
I worked on his jobs council, worked on the Jobs Act, which passed Congress uh, 10 years ago, make it easier for entrepreneurs to raise capital. Uh, and then about uh, about nine or 10 years ago, we launched the first Rise of the Rest tour, really traveling around the country by bus, visiting these cities, understanding what's happening, identifying promising entrepreneurs. And, and so far, as, as you said, we've invested over 200 companies, over 100 different cities. And there's some remarkable success stories, which is why I decided to write the book. Most people don't know what's happening all across the country. Most people don't know entrepreneurship is alive and well and growing in many cities around the, you know, the country. Most people don't know that venture capital is starting to spread to more of these cities. Uh, most people don't know how important these startups are in, in the economic engine, the job creation engine in these communities and therefore in our country. And that's why I decided to write a, a book, hopefully inspiring others to start companies, others to invest in those companies in the middle of the country or to mentor those companies and, and, and support what can be a, a new generation of American entrepreneurship so we can continue to lead the way, continue to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world while we see China and others rising as competitive threats, but do it in a more inclusive way that does bring more people and more places along. To brag to me, not brag to me, uh, share with me, you share about 40 stories in the book about entrepreneurs. You wish you could have done all 200. A few of them that really touched you the most and knowing that had you not done what you did, you've done, these would not exist. And, and it's, that's, I'm, not, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. That's the absolute truth. Well, some of them may have existed, but hopefully we were able to provide more visibility, more capital for them right. to, to, to scale. But uh, the first city we visited, our first tour was was Detroit, which was an interesting one to pick because, as you know, 100 years ago, Detroit was sort of the Silicon Valley of its time, the most innovative city in America when the automobile was the hot technology of the day. But it fell, fell, fell on a really hard time. It lost 60% of its population over a half a century. And the year before we rolled in on our Rise of the Rest bus, so just 10 years ago, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. Uh, so he said, what, what's going on in Detroit? Well, how can we build a stronger startup community in Detroit? How can we identify promising companies to back in, in Detroit? And we backed several, including uh, StockX, which was just an idea at the time, a kind of idea on a napkin. Now is a company that's basically a stock exchange for things, trading sneakers and other sorts of things. The last valuation was several billion dollars. And I had now have over a thousand jobs uh, in Detroit. We also backed Shinola, which has over a thousand jobs in Detroit and it's expanded around the the country and Atlanta. We backed a company called Hermius that's building a Mach 5 engine. So you can go from Atlanta to Europe in 90 minutes. The Air Force is a big customer there. That spun out of uh, Georgia Tech and Arkansas and Fayetteville. We backed a company called Freight Waves. It's built a, a platform to allow people to invest in farmland to diversify and also allow the farmers to raise the capital to expand so they don't have to sell. They can, uh, they can uh, expand. In Baltimore, we backed a company called Catalyte that uses AI to identify talent people have that they people didn't previously notice around coding other kinds of things and they can you know get the training they need to really get a much higher paying uh, you know, job there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these stories in, in, in the book these are just some examples of great ideas from great entrepreneurs just from places that you don't normally look to people when they think yeah. of these innovative ideas so just assume they're in silicon valley uh but now increasingly they're all over the country You've had some pretty prolific people in, in, invest in the fund, uh, Ray Dalio, Tory Burch, uh, Howard, my old friend Howard Schultz. Do you see anything different in the entrepreneurs of today versus previous years? I mean, there, there's got to be certain threads, and I'm just curious, just because from both geographically how you're doing it from a more diverse point of view and from an age point of view, you're, you're dealing obviously with a younger constituent. Any, what are the parallels and what are the kind of new threads that you see? 
Well, I think there's some things that are similar and something a little bit different. The things that are similar is anybody you know, who takes a shot at building something and decides they want to, you know, take the entrepreneurial path recognizes it's kind of it's kind of risky. It's not it's not, it's not an easy path. And a lot of people are scared to do it. The entrepreneurs that are successful jump in and, and say they're going to do it. And, and what's changed is it's it now the, the markets uh, and particularly in the technology world, the, the digital world, it, things have really sped up. So the idea that you start slowly, you build one store like Sam Walton building one Walmart in Arkansas, and then two, then three, and then slowly after a half a century, uh, you, you, you scale up. Now the, the markets generally are accelerating, which is why you need to generally raise capital to capitalize on some of these opportunities. It's a little harder to bootstrap your way into a, a mega success in the, in, the, in, the, in the digital world. Also, increasingly, the entrepreneurs that are that are you know, looking at opportunities now recognize that you know, policy matters more, government matters more. Some of the biggest industries in the country, in the world, healthcare, financial services, food, agriculture, all these things are, you know, are tend to be regulated. So you have to understand that that there's, there's an overlay there, and that's been a big focus of my, my investment firm, you know, Revolution. We're focused on place, ties in with rise the rest, and we're focused on policy. We think the next generation of companies will be birthed in places that most people aren't looking and will need to have a, an understanding expertise around you know, policy to really be successful. I want to talk to you about a new, really cool, super healthy, super delicious meal service called Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you get fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You get two-minute meals, fuel up fast with factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and heat whenever you are, pancakes, smoothies, uh, no prep, no mess meals. Factors meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prep and cooking or cleanup needed. It's flexible for your schedule. Um, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for a fast premium option with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So stop doing takeout. These are meals that are completely put together for you. All you got to do is heat them up. They'll be delivered. Head to factormeals.com slash Donny50 and use code Donny50 to get 50% off. That's code Donny50 at factormeals.com slash Donny50 to get 50% off. Mine are coming to me next week. I can't wait to try them. I hear great things about them. But Factor, this is good stuff. It tastes great. It's easy to use. It's healthy. I really, really, I really endorse it. Factor, go get them. One of the, I was listening to your podcast when you, with Kara Swisher last year, and you were talking about J.D. Vance was one of the early, one of your early partners, ran ran your business. And uh, I'm going to assume, and you kind of hinted at this, it, it was a very different J.D. Vance than what we've seen now as, as a senator. Yeah, no, I met J.D. when his book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, had just come out. It was a, it was a big, uh, big success. He was moving to Washington, D.C., which is where Revolution is headquartered because his wife was going to be working at the Supreme Court as a clerk for a year. 
Uh, and so we talked about what we were doing with Rise of the Rest, and he agreed to join us for it. Was, ended up being a little bit more than a, a year as we were kind of launching one of the you know the first funds. And he was very helpful, you know, kind of understanding what was happening in different cities and traveling around. Then he, after he spent time with us, moved back to Ohio, and, and because he was interested in going home and, and started his own you know, venture firm uh, there. And then obviously uh, decided to run for uh, for Senate. And uh, you know, the, as you know, you follow it more closely than I. The politics of, of the, the Things today are are uh, much more intense, and and I think he he he, uh, he either he's evolved some of his positions, or maybe he took some positions that I didn't fully understand at the time. But that's I think unfortunately part of what seems to be happening in politics today. One of the nice things about Rise there are very few things that are apolitical that cut across the aisle today, and entrepreneurship is one of those, and and your vision is one of those things that there is no blue and red states in what you're doing. You are totally correct. And one of the things I saw this firsthand a decade ago when, I, as I mentioned, I worked on some of this uh, policy work that led to the JOBS Act called the Jump Starting Our Business Startups Act. And I passed it with broad, broad bipartisan support. So it is one of the few things that unites people. Even just uh, a little over a year ago, the Chips and Science Act passed Congress with bipartisan support. That included things around chips to make sure we're kind of controlling our destiny as a country around semiconductors, but also include a $10 billion investment in regional tech hubs that also had broad bipartisan uh, support. And now I'm working, I'm co-chairing again the National Advisory Council on Innovation Entrepreneurship. We're working on a national entrepreneurship strategy that will be rolling out you know, soon. And it includes issues around access to talent and, and, and access to capital and, and how do you build up more diverse, diverse uh, ecosystems around the country, different people, different places. What we talked about before, how do you make sure we're winning on the industries of the future, some of the moonshot opportunities as, as a nation. And we want that also to have broad bipartisan support. Is one if people, everybody seems to be recognized, even though there are a lot of things that divide the, the nation right now, including in, in our in our politics. It does feel like entrepreneurship, innovation, job creation is is one of the few things that everybody agrees is important. So hopefully, with this national entrepreneurship strategy, we'll be able to galvanize broad based support to move some of those ideas forward. Subject that's certainly very divisive, immigration. You've been involved with immigration reform. Immigration is so important, uh, so important to entrepreneurship, uh, if you just study the history of it. Yet we're in a real kind of conundrum right now. You know, you are, on the one hand, what we stand for as a country is open gates. And, you know, we all of our ancestors came here and we need to do that. You know, on the other hand, you see the migrant problem in the cities right now. I'm, I'm, I'm on the Upper East Side of New York. It's just... It you ten thousand a month. Even the mayor, a progressive mayor, has said this. This is something's got to give here. So you are the immigration czar right now. What do you do with this? Well, first of all, I do acknowledge, as you just framed it, it's a multifaceted problem. I also recognize it's it's uh, there's many different you know views, and there's some real sensitivities on different issues. So it's it's not just one thing. It's 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 many things. The part that I'm most focused on. Uh, is how do we win what is now a global battle for talent? As you said, a lot of our top uh, you know, technology companies, over half of the Fortune 500 companies were started by immigrants or children of immigrants. So about half of the Silicon Valley successful companies were started by immigrants or children of immigrants. So this has been a key part of the story. It's how America's become so great in terms of a, this innovative uh, a place where people want to be here, they want to move here, they want to start companies here, and they also want to create jobs here and drive economic growth here. And so that piece of it, I think, is is super important. And it does get caught up in the broader 
immigration discussion. I actually testified in the Senate almost 10 years ago around uh, immigration uh, reform. And I think maybe unbundling some of these issues and trying to, trying to get everything done, trying to get some things done, and over time sequentially get more things done may be the, the answer. And even reframing this issue around uh, not just tying it into immigration, border security, things like that, which again are, are, are important issues and re- need, need more attention. But this is about a talent recruitment. It's more like, as you well know, companies are only su- as successful as the people they can recruit to join those companies. Well, guess what? Countries also need to recruit people from around the country as well as doing a better job of teaching the skills for the future to, to our own you know, kids who are you know, born and raised in, in America. Some of the things around creativity and collaboration that, that you spend a lot of time you know, focusing on in your career. Those are important skills. They're the kind of skills that machines can't do, AI can't do. So we need to rethink what our curriculum is in terms of teaching our the, our, our, the kids grown in this country, born in this country, as well as attracting people from other countries. So I view it as more of a talent recruitment exercise if, if we're going to remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation. You mentioned AI. What do you what do you lose sleep over at night about AI? We we could talk about the benefits of it, but there's there's like every new technology, there's a dark underbelly. What concerns you about it? Well, I do think there are a lot of great benefits. So I, I tend to look at most of these new technologies, including the internet. There are some great positives to it. There are also some negatives. It's always a, a mixed bag, and I think the challenge is how you maximize the benefits and minimize some of the. The risk. I think we're, we're starting to focus on some of that. Even this week and here in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of discussion around things like safety and trust and security and, and so forth. And how do you make sure these platforms scale? America leads, but does it in a in a smart way. One of the areas that I don't think is getting as much attention as it should that I do uh, worry about is this may be a situation where the big get bigger, that big tech gets even more powerful and it makes it harder for young, you know, innovative entrepreneurial com- companies to, to, to break into this. Right now, in terms of the, the, the large you know, models, the, the large platforms, you know, tens of billions of dollars, arguably probably over $100 billion being invested by each of the big companies, the, 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 the Googles and the Microsofts and, and, and you know, Meta and, and so forth. Uh, and, and we need to make sure those large language models are open, just as in the early days of the Internet. Part of the reason AOL was successful is the telephone networks were required to be open. It was a provision around open access. Instead of just being AT&T as a monopoly deciding what to do, it was, the, the network was opened up and allowed a lot of people to, to compete. Telecommunications costs you know, came down a lot. A lot of innovative ideas, AOL, many others, even emerged from that. We need a similar dynamic as AI takes hold. So this idea of openness and making sure that the the big companies are are required to open their networks to the small companies, uh, I think is one of the areas that I worry about. Otherwise, I think if big big gets bigger, it will not really uh, position the the nation in the right way, will not really create opportunity for more people in more places in in the right way. I want to pick your brain because you travel around the country. You're in a bus and you're, 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 you're grassroots. You might as well be running for office. How did we get so divided? I, 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 it's a very layered question. And how, because you and I are about the same age and we've lived through a lot, but the divisiveness, the polarization, the, the, the tribalism now, is it such a fever pitch? As a marketer and as a business guy and as a father, what's your take on this? How did we get here? No, it's very troubling, and and it, for the reasons you mentioned, it's sort of uh, a time where we're seeing you know global threats, and 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 you know the story of America is still evolving, and in three years, 
America celebrates its 250th birthday. I've been working on this because for the last uh, more than a decade, I've been on the board of regents of the Smithsonian Institution, including chairing the institution for the last uh, several years. We were just on a call earlier today about America's 250th and, and what the Smithsonian could be doing on, on, on that front. And part of it is how do we make sure we use it as an opportunity to try to unite a very divided country. In terms of how we got to here, you, you follow this as, as, as much as I do. There, as you said, there are many facets to it. Uh, clearly, one of them is a, an economic facet where a lot of people do feel left out and left behind. They, they feel like you know the, the digital world, the things we celebrate in places like Silicon Valley haven't been good for their families, haven't been good for their communities. They've seen more job loss than job gain. And, and there's a, this income inequality dynamic that's getting more and more and more uh, challenging. So no question, there's a lot of frustration in a lot of places around the country. I see it as I, as I travel around and, and visit these different uh, uh, cities. So part of the solution, again, it's just one small part of a much larger uh, issue. Part of that is to focus on creating more opportunity, which has to mean focusing on creating more new companies. Because the t- statistic, other than the 75% of venture capital going to three states that, that surprised me uh, when I w- started working on this a decade ago, was that essentially all the net job creation in this country comes from new companies companies under five years old. Startup. Say that again. Say that again. All net job creation in the country comes from new companies, it's not incredible. small business, not big business, mm-hmm. but new business. And the reason Amazing. for that in the small business sector- I, I never knew. I never heard that stat. That's, it's that's hugely, it's hugely yeah. important. Small businesses, restaurants and so forth is hugely important. We even saw that in the, in the, the, the risk there in the pandemic. But, but as a sector, it doesn't grow jobs. One restaurant might go out of business, likely will get replaced by another restaurant will hire roughly the same number of people. So as a sector, it doesn't really create jobs. And the other thing that's kind of surprising is the biggest companies, the Fortune 500, as a sector, don't uh, also create jobs. Some are growing really fast on Amazon or what have you, but some it's are in decline, yeah. you know, shedding yeah. jobs. And so if you add that all up, all the gains and the losses, it is not really net growth, though. So it's new companies, it's startups, which is why backing more new companies in more places with the capital they need to start and scale is is uh, is so important. So in, in terms of the divide, there there is, it's obviously many many different you know, facets to it. Don't want to be make it overly simplistic. Don't want to say it's all just about economics, but that is part of the problem, and that's the piece of it that we're particularly focused on with rise of the rest. I ask this question of everybody. The premise of this podcast is that kind of everything is a brand today. Every athlete, every celebrity, every product, every movement. What's the Steve Case brand? I think the Steve Case brand is, uh, you know, an entrepreneur who tries to support entrepreneurs, really tries to create opportunity, really tries to level the playing field. It's one of the things I always loved about the internet in those early days. It struck me as a way to level the playing field instead of just having a a, a few broadcasters, particularly the big three networks, people, more people would have voices. It would open up competition in, in, in commerce and entertainment, lots of other, other fields. So there's a little bit of a most a populist side of it that I thought was yeah. attractive. And similarly with, with Rise of Rest, there's something about creating that opportunity, leveling the playing field that, that's, uh, that's uh, really important to me and really drives you know, my, my interest in, 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 in doing this. But ultimately, it's about how do, how do you, you know, help, help people who have ideas to take those ideas and make them real in the process, you know, create the jobs and drive the economic growth that lifts up communities and strengthens our, our, our country. Steve Case, the book out in paperback now in the next few days is The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. You are a visionary, you are an entrepreneur, and you are a great American thinker. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Don. I really appreciate it. Great to see you. 
All right, let's not let too much time go by. Exactly. I think it's been probably about a decade since we talked. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that's, that's, I hope to see you soon. All right, man, stay well. <laughs>